1: and who we are
0: and what we are. But it's something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon.
2: This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst and on today's program we continue our ongoing exploration of urban economies and the future of economic development in the ongoing series The Working City and today we're hearing from a variety of perspectives on the future of Vancouver's regional economy. Is the city on track to become a resort town with a real estate dependent economy and low wage service sector? Are we on track to become a hub for transportation, technology and value added industries And how do highly uncertain times that we live in economically and environmentally play into this? That and more on the show. You're tuned into The City. And what is the future of Vancouver's regional economic landscape? That's a question on many policymakers' minds, um, as well as uh, many people that are employed and, um, and living here in the region. Um, and so that's something that we're going to hopefully address um, in a number of different ways and from a number of different perspectives here on the show today. In a recently released report um, in December of 2011, 2011, Metro Vancouver attempted to provide um, a snapshot and a future projection of what that economic landscape looks like. And Metro Vancouver is the regional planning authority. Um, they provide a number of uh, different functions from uh, waste um, management to uh, drinking water, among other services um, But importantly, they also provide um, economic um, and regional growth planning as well. And in this report... um They have provided uh, some indication of where they think the economic um, development of the region is likely to go. And they write that in preparing regional employment growth projections, Metro Vancouver reviewed existing studies and contracted consultant studies to estimate how future employment growth is likely to relate to future population and labor force growth and how employment within the component industry sectors is likely to evolve in future years. While all studies indicate a continuing shift in employment from goods producing to service industries and continuing increases in technology and productivity affecting the overall employment, the studies provided a range of possibilities for for change from the current employment profile. And these possibilities range from only modest differences in all employment indicators to significant decreases in the ratio of employment to population, as well as significant changes in the component employment sectors. And so what they're talking about is that um, their projections suggest that business and commercial services, uh, the fire, uh, finance, uh, insurance, and real estate, uh, retail services, accommodation, food services, and information cultural, culture employment uh, will account um, collectively for about 55% of future growth. And health, education, and public administration will provide for another 23% of growth, with manufacturing, transportation... Wholesale trade and construction taking another 21% of um, projected economic um, employment uh, growth or or consisting of the future employment growth. And this is looking to 2041 um, for those projections. So a bit out in the future. Um, And then lastly, to conclude, primary industry taking up the remaining 1% of the projected um, employment snapshot. So certainly, um, building on a number of trends that we already see and very much um, what some have called uh, a post-industrial landscape, um, where um, the producer services sector and business um, services sectors account for the majority of economic growth. So with that said, uh, we're going to jump right into um, a panel discussion. And this is uh, from uh, February 2012. And so on the program, as we continue, Uh, our ongoing series the working city examining urban economic landscapes and today looking here at Vancouver um, we hear from a variety of perspectives um, that of a small um, laneway developer and home builder an economist and a politician and this is a discussion as I mentioned recorded in February of this year 2012 and it was recorded at the 2012 UBC School of Community and Regional Planning Symposium
0: Thanks for coming to this symposium today and to our panel. Uh, This panel is on global change and local economic development, um, challenges and opportunities for climate. I'm John Chapman, this is Jesse Singer, we're both students at the planning school here, and uh, we're we're really pleased and excited to uh, have this panel and our panelists. So we're hoping to have a lively discussion, looking at some of the challenges that we're going to face um, in, the, in the next few years due to some global changes, um, things that Tony that and Bill touched on uh, just earlier this morning. Um, we're looking at some opportunities and challenges that we'll have uh, in creating a vibrant and resilient and local economy in the region and the province. Um, we're going to draw on the experience and expertise of our panelists. We have Bryn uh, Davidson from um, Dynamic Cities uh, Project, and also Elaine Fab Laneway Homes. And we have to his left, Mark Lee, an economist with the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, the co-director of the Climate Justice Project, and the chair of the Progressive Economics Forum. And on the far left, or your right, uh, we have Shane Simpson, who's the MLA for Vancouver Hastings, uh, before being elected to office, he was the director of policy for Smart Growth, BC. He's been chair of the Vancouver Planning Commission and instructor at SFU, among other accomplishments. So thank you all for coming, and we're looking forward to uh, hearing what you have to say today. <coughs> the 2012 SCARP Symposium is um, focused around the work of our retiring professors Uh, Tony Dorsey and Dr. Bill Reese. Tony has been a strong advocate of SCARP's focus on sustainability and he's encouraged all of his students to use this as a focusing principle uh, in our work and our practice. He sees planners as uniquely positioned to work comprehensively and across disciplines to advance the principles of sustainability. We like to use that as one of the focuses for our uh, panel today. Uh, Bill Rees uh, clearly communicates to all of his students the challenges that are going to, that are facing us and will face us uh, in the future if we do not recognize and adapt to um, issues such as climate change and resource and energy scarcity. Uh, he continually works to make sure that we are all aware of global environmental trends and how they relate to socioeconomic development. We'd also like to use that as a Focusing principle for this panel. So, we're thinking about the uncertainties inherent in planning um, in coming decades. uh, We're looking at a world of peak oil and energy scarcity, climate change, um, and sort of uncertainty in the global economy. And we would like to consider what economic development policy might make sense in uh, the region and the province. Um, What discussions should we be having? What discussions are we having uh, and what innovative ideas are we are we missing? Um, in BC, we have seen a shift away from a manufacturing base uh, as we pursue uh, so service sector employment. Um, and uh, today, we're, there's a discussion around the economic future of the region, looking at the Port of Vancouver uh, as the main driver. Many people believe that this will be a transportation hub um, and will be moving uh, goods and resources in and out. Other people might see Vancouver as a sort of Vegas North or a <coughs> resort community uh, that will increasingly depend upon tourism and real estate investment. Um, in the city of Vancouver, we have a municipal government that is Strong on green jobs and clean technology, biotechnology, and high technology. Um, we here today were interested in looking at, at uh, other, maybe less obvious scenarios uh, for Vancouver. And we're looking to talk about the interplay between uh, peak everything and Vancouver's place in the local and global economy. So we're going to turn it over to the panelists. Each panelist will give a brief presentation uh, before we get into discussion. Uh, And the panelists have been asked to consider the following question when preparing the presentation. If you could implement one strategy or policy tomorrow that would move BC towards a low carbon, resilient economy, what would it be? So Bryn, I'll let you lead us off. Thank you.
3: Thanks. So I'm, I guess I can stand up. I'm Bryn Davidson. I come at these issues from two sides. Uh, I do consulting work around peak oil, climate change, and urban planning on one hand, and on the other hand, I have a design and construction company that's working locally to create green buildings. So I have an interest in the big picture and then how that gets implemented on the ground. So in terms of peak oil and climate change, I really look at those as being integrated into something that I call the energy transition. They're the things that are going to be basically forcing us to move away from cheap fossil fuels and the underpinnings of the fossil fuel economy. So the next slide. I think it's important when we're talking about those two issues that we're very clear about the ways that they are uh, common and the ways that they are distinct. There are many things that we are doing in regards to, uh, in response to peak oil, like tar sands, uh, shale fracking, uh, a lot of biofuels and other things that are very bad for the climate. But we're doing those because of our concerns about the economic need for liquid fossil fuels. On the other hand, there are many things that we're doing on the climate side planting trees as carbon offsets and other things like that that do absolutely nothing to reduce the oil dependence of our local economy. And so what we find is that when we look at the intersection of those two things, there are things that we can do that, that do reduce emissions and also reduce oil dependence. And so I think that those are the things that one, we're going to be forced to deal with first, but they're also the kind of, uh, I call them the high priority areas that we really need to be looking at changing the way we do things. And so that's you know land use, planning, transportation. You guys are really right at the center of the intersection of those two major issues. Uh, this chart I find fascinating. What this is, is vehicle highway miles traveled in the US. That's where the data is from. Starting in uh, mid-80s, going up, 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 until right about here. So this is basically the whole history of the sort of contemporary environmental movement. And as people are talking about environmentalism and climate change, people just keep driving more and more and more. Until we started getting expensive gasoline, we hit about $100 barrel gas, and then we had a major recession. And so what I start to see from this is that the mechanisms that really drive change at scale, not just amongst environmentalists, but at scale, are price spikes, recession, rationing, and shortage. And that's not to say that there isn't positive change that we can all do, but the green movement, what we're doing in a lot of ways is capacity building. We are creating the tools that people can pick up and run with when those mechanisms, price spikes, recession, rationing, and shortage, come on board. And so when we start looking at it, next slide, when I talk about the dynamic city, it's not just about sustainability, it's also about resiliency. So how do we create a resilient post-carbon economy? And what I've found in in discussing it this way is that I can reach a whole different sector of of people, people who aren't just environmentalists. Um, i talked to the metro Vancouver Board of Land Use and Environmental Planning. And afterwards, I have some of the the representatives from some of the smaller communities out in the valley saying, you know, this resiliency thing really resonates in a way that climate change doesn't. And so I think that as we look at it going forward, the resiliency needs to be central to the way we talk about what we need to be doing. Next slide. Uh, There are, of course, it's not just all doom and gloom. Um, Maybe I'm Bill Reese light, I think. I have a design and construction company. This is a net zero laneway house we just completed. This, we're actually having an open house this weekend. If anybody wants to come walk through it, that's my little plug. Um, also, this is a friend and client of mine, Rob Safrata, has this company, Novex Courier, and they just brought in these all-electric delivery vans. So they're uh, the first all-electric heavy delivery vehicles in Canada. And so there are really interesting examples of, of, of people, I think, throughout this region trying to do new things. And it's not just saving the environment, you're also putting yourself in a position where you are more competitive in a future increasingly defined by peak oil and climate change. So in terms of what we need to be doing, uh, if I had to kind of boil it down to, to, to sort of short ideas, the next one, um, we need to have this idea of kind of peak thinking. And I think I see lots of organizations that still... I have a very tough time talking about peak oil, talking about peak topsoil, peak water, peak whatever. This idea of resource constraints and that the the century coming up is one increasingly defined by resource constraints and how that affects the way we we think and do everything is critical. So if we're gonna do something, I think we need to explicitly acknowledge peak oil and some of these other things. The other piece is that I used to think we needed more solar panels, more buses, more whatever. Um, and the more we kind of got into this, the more we realized really what we're dealing with is a very fragile economic system and, and fiscal system. And so when we look at the the most recent sort of economic breakdown, we realize that what we really need is a resilient kind of uh, money and credit clearing system. Because those same things that really drive change at scale, price spikes, recession, they really make you want to all of a sudden ride the bus instead of driving your car. At the same time, they're really damaging our ability to buy smart cars or buy solar panels or whatever else so in this kind of turbulent change model that we're looking at we need a much more resilient uh money system so that's uh just i guess the last one that's it that's my five minutes thanks
4: all right well i don't have slides uh, so you're just going to have to listen um well, thank you so much to, uh, to SCARP and the students for inviting me to be part of this panel. Um, I, th- I think what I'd like to start out with is just a few com- principles around ecological economics which I think are pertinent to the discussion. I looked at the discussion questions in the program and I was like, whoa, those are big questions. So I mean, I don't know that I know the answer to them or at least they're up for debate and uh, so I figured I'd more lay some context of what I think I know uh, to help Further a discussion that we can all have together. Um, so, you know, I've been well, I've been spending a lot of time with Bill Rees lately. So, I'll just put that out on the out on the table um, yeah, as part of the Climate Justice Project, where we are looking at, you know, how do we do what the science tells us is necessary in terms of reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions, extremely drastically. Um, but doing so in a way that considers social justice that tries to aim for a smooth transition and so of kind of put it in the language of planners is, you know, trying to think about how we can plan for the future we want, rather than reacting and adapting to the future that is essentially getting thrust upon us, which is taking us to this place where we could uh, be in a four degree warmer world according to some recent scientific studies, as early as the 2060s, um, certainly by, by the end of, of this century. So essentially within the lived experience of many people within this room. Um, so, you know, to me, this is like the overarching concern of, of our generation. And when I see what's, what, what's happening in Ottawa right now and what's happening with the BC government in terms of trying to peddle even more fossil fuels it's almost like the object of policy is to take as much carbon from out of the ground and put it into the atmosphere to make as much money as possible in the short run you know for uh, purely you know commercial and and political gains like period so um so you know the ecological economics is that we have to think about the materials and energy that flow into our economy that produce the goods and services that we enjoy as consumers because ultimately you know you know we've met the enemy the enemy is us uh, and as much as I like to pick on you know Enbridge and uh, and these oil and gas companies and the tar sands you know a lot of that is becoming because you know we demand it you know we we want to go for Sun and surf in the dead of, of winter um, you know we want to be able to, you know, drive on, on, on trips to, you know, as academics to go to conferences around the world and all this this kind of stuff. Um, but ultimately, we know that the byproduct of this is, is this growing problem with, with climate change. And I think the, the, the science, to me, if, and I take a, pretty, a more uh, uh, the kind of the 350.org view on science, is that we are at 390 parts per million. Uh, we need to be long-term at 350. A lot of the policy work is around Uh, 450 so that says okay we got you know we got time we can we can we can manage this transition Um, my read of the science is that 450 is basically a coin toss Uh, it's a 50 50 chance of hitting uh, two degrees celsius Uh, and at two degrees celsius we're concerned that at that point humans lose the capacity to shape the outcome that these feedback loops kick in uh, forests start burning methane gets released from arctic sea ice and permafrost and, and the cycle just continues and then, you know, we're into that realm where all we can do uh, is react. And even the International Energy Agency says that, you know, if we don't get on track within five years, then we pretty much lock ourselves in for this two degree target. And some people, Bill Rees included, would say that we are already locked in for two degrees. The question is whether we hit three uh, or four degrees. Um, So uh, to me, the kind of core problem relates back to localization is that we are still very much embedded in a mindset uh, in Canada and in B.C. around uh, resource extraction. Uh, This was our bread and butter going back 150, you know, 200 years. It's been hugely successful for us. Uh, And so we keep, you know, playing that strategy over uh, and over again. But we're doing it in ways that we're actually reducing the amount of value that we add to our resources. Now in BC, we are exporting uh, quantities of raw logs instead of processing them here in in province. We used to have regulations that specified that we had to process them uh, in the province. Uh, In the oil and gas field, again, we're not even like, we're gonna wanna refine this stuff uh, as as marketable product. We are gonna take as raw a resource as possible Pipeline it out, put it on a tanker, and send it to uh, to China so that they can process it and and reap uh, the economic benefits from that. That's that's all kind of you know beside the point in terms of the economics because ultimately I think we need to keep that f- fuel in the ground. We need to lock those stores of carbon uh, underground uh, essentially forever, and we need to do that to to be on that path. Uh, you know very soon. You know we need to essentially be something close to zero fossil fuels. Um, I'd say, you know, as soon as possible, but realistically, you know, by, by 2040 uh, or so. The good news is that this is, it's a political problem. The, the, the politics of um, the, the current moment, the, you know, the, the ideology and the, the, the denial and the, the big money uh, behind fossil fuel industries are what is perpetuating this machine. But uh, we can actually shift to a sustainable economy. It's not... Uh, it's not that we need some brand spanking new technology to come and save it for us. With, with the well-known and existing technologies, we can do it. It'll take some time. It requires that we rebuild our infrastructure uh, over time to, uh, to rethink how we design our communities at, at a structural level. So it's not just about individuals making green consumer choices. It's about developing uh, complete communities that are more fundamentally walkable and bikeable that then support small business uh, and adding to that the type of you know, net zero kind of buildings that, that um, you know, we would want developing closed loop cycles for the materials that, that come into our, our economy so that it's not just a purely you know, extract, produce, consume, and, and, uh, and waste uh, kind of model. So um, I've only gotten through a fraction of what I would really jot it down here, but, but let, me come, let me answer your question. The, the, what, what would drive the type of change that, that I want the single most policy? I, I would say it's, it's carbon pricing. Um, you know, we have a, a carbon tax in BC. It's pretty weensy as things go, but it's there. And, and it's a framework and a vehicle by which we could, uh, we could do a lot of good. Um, I would argue that we need to push the, the current carbon tax, which is $25 per ton, about six little less than $0.06 cents per litre at the gas pump. So it's not huge. We need to push that up to about $200 per ton by 2020. What that would do is essentially close the gap, in terms of uh, gas prices anyways, between what we have now and what you see in Europe. So it's not like we're talking something out of the realm of human experience. Um, what that would do would generate essentially billions of dollars that would be able to fund building retrofits, uh, investments in public transit, uh, green jobs programs, uh, conservation measures in force, all of the things that we need are essentially available there. Uh, it would also, we'd have to take part of that money and just flow that back to low-income households so that they are not uh, adversely uh, impacted by it. But nonetheless, uh, this is you know, multi-billions of dollars that we need to reinvest in our infrastructure, while at the same time increasing the cost of emitting fossil fuels. Because the key problem we have right now is what's called cost externalization. The price we pay when we use fossil fuels does not reflect the full costs uh, of of production because it's imposing costs on people who live in the global south, on future generations. They are going to have to pay those costs down the road. And if you look at measures of what they call the, the externality or the social cost of carbon associated with that, you know it's it's anywhere from you know $200 per ton all the way up to maybe up to as high as $1,000 uh, per ton so we need to get on that that track and this measure actually sort of makes those the price you pay uh, come closer to the cost so basically it's it's a win-win across all of these different things huge challenge to the fossil fuel industries because basically we need to decommission those industries and there are trillions of dollars of assets uh, invested in those industries right now so there's a lot of inertia we have to overcome but it's kind of like a, the housing bubble we went through uh, a few years ago uh, it's it's not sustainable over the long run uh, there's a whole bunch of other things you would want to do in terms of public investment and regulation but I think the core driver of the change we need to have is, uh is carbon pricing so I'll leave it there um, and we can raise other stuff in the uh, in the break thanks Thank you.
1: Great. Uh, thank you very much for the uh, invitation to come and uh, spend a little bit of time. And I, I, uh, it's a topic I haven't had uh, uh, spent as much time thinking about since I got elected in five But uh, uh, it's a topic that I now uh, probably am thinking about more and more as we look into the future as to how we deal with uh, a number of issues. So, um, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking back to the time that. Uh, that I've kind of watched the debate. And I'm going to take a little bit more of, I think, a practical approach to some of this. Um, uh, I think back to the debates that we've had around this. I think back to my time when I worked at Smart Growth. Uh, And um, all of the debate and discussion we had around community economic development and and the notion of community economic development about developing complete communities. I think about how we engaged um, some of the people who were, uh, at that time, particularly I- impressing that movement, people like Richard Florida who were talking about uh, how, to, how to create economy and the creative class and those things, the whole smart growth movement. And the more I thought about that, and I know we started to be challenged when I was uh, involved in that, and we were challenged um, by people in the United States who were reacting very negatively to, to that movement. And, and the reason that they reacted negatively, it largely came out of the inner cities, the black inner city cores. Uh, who saw the smart growth movement and much of what that was about in terms of how we develop our cities as in fact being a fairly elitist approach that ignored the poor. Uh, and that looked at people who were middle class waking up to the reality that uh, that Mark talks about, about climate, about uh, the future and saying I better do something about this because these are things I can't insulate myself from. We need to deal with these. But they ignored the poor and they ignored those communities. And I know we reacted in Vancouver and that's what actually generated the smart growth movement starting to have a conversation about the issue of housing and starting to think about smart growth in a social context as well as an environmental and economic context. And so that was a positive thing. But I think that that underlies a lot of the reality we have. Um, one of my favorite thinkers on these issues uh, made a comment to me uh, one time, Patrick Condon, who, uh, who made a comment to me Uh, in a a session we were having where we were talking about how to move forward um, on some of these issues and as he said you know when you talk about climate change and you talk about solutions to that the reality is this people are not going to respond to many of these grand notions to many of these notions about radical change in policy when they're not sure how they pay their rent and how they put food on the table and that we need to deal with those issues um, as equally important to dealing with the issues of how we deal with climate and our environmental future. So I want to talk a little bit about what I think it means in our region. Uh, for the lower mainland and that, I think, and, and the comment uh, uh, that was made, uh, I think the key to our region in economic terms is transportation. And transportation drives what we do. And the port drives what we do. Uh, we know that uh, the port is growing. Uh, They have a new plan in place for 2050. Uh, They're going to expand dramatically. Uh, There's going to be a lot of pressure created by that for the trucks that it puts on the road, for what comes out of Delta port, for the impacts on Burns Bog, uh, for the debate about how we expand uh, our rail systems. But the reality is this. The port is going to be the economic driver, I believe, of this region for a period of time to come. So part of the challenge for us is to determine how we build that relationship with the poor. Uh, And of course, as a region and as planners, um, as a province for that matter, we have a limited ability to influence the decisions of the poor because they are autonomous and independent. And while they've over the last number of years recognized the need uh, to engage uh, jurisdictions uh, in a more meaningful way. They have no real obligation to do that, and at the end of the day they will do what they choose to do. Uh, and only the federal government, in fact, and the Minister of Transportation, I guess at the federal level, uh, can can change their mind uh, if they're persistent about it. Now the port to their, uh, to their credit is changing. I think back to a few years ago, and one of the things that I was involved in was stopping a concrete batch plant in our neighborhood. Uh, from going ahead, Uh, but to that point, and that goes back a number of years, the port never had a planner on staff. They didn't have a planner. They now have a planning department, which is a good thing, Uh, and those are folks, and they have people whose responsibility is to engage community. So we need to look at the effect of the port, and that's a key piece of transportation that we're gonna move forward. The other key piece of transportation, of course, is gonna be how we move people, and we don't, it's a very significant investment in how we move people but we need to find the dollars to do that and certainly the conversation around uh, ending the neutrality uh, revenue neutrality of the carbon tax and investing those dollars and that's probably not going to be enough money but using that as a base uh, funding source to begin to develop uh, particularly south of the Fraser and and out into the Tri-Cities area beginning to develop increased transportation taking us out to Chilliwack and such we're going to need to do that and we're going to need to do that very soon. And it's going to be expensive, but it is going to have to do, but that's going to be part of our obligation uh, to do that. Um, And I think that what we'll find as we begin to do that is we'll find what I think is going to be the next uh, incremental response around climate in this province. The reality is, as others have talked about, we are a resource-based industry, uh, community and province. That's not going to change and it's not gonna change in the foreseeable future. We are going to, we are now focused on gas, and be clear, we are, those, uh, those plants are gonna be built in Kitimat, and we are going to move that gas, and that would happen whether it's a liberal government or an NDP government or a conservative government. We are gonna build those plants and we're gonna do that. And we're gonna do that because it's a source of revenue for government that we simply don't have available to us politically from other avenues. And taxation, we don't have that ability. You know, we as a political party are the first party, I think, to talk about increasing taxes in an open way, and we're going to talk more about it in the next year. But it's been something that nobody's prepared prepared to talk about. We need to talk about increasing taxes and changing our tax regime. But the reality, too, is we are going to deal with resources. So, uh, and, and, and it's quite true. We need to deal with things like raw logs, and we need to deal with value added. And there's a whole array of different ways to manage Um, our resources. And I think that we need to do that and move forward. I do believe, though, that um, we need to look at climate and we need to look at our large urban centers as we become increasingly urban um, as the place that we're going to deal at at an incremental stage with climate. Uh, And that means that we're going to need to look at zoning policy. We're going to need to look at housing. We're going to need to look at how we design our communities. We're going to need to look at green buildings. And we're going to need to drive down our emissions from our highly populated areas uh, as, I think, a first and pretty doable step. It's also a job creator, a significant job creator. If we invested the resources in, uh, in retrofits, we would create an awful lot of employment for people and we would go a very long way. Uh, to to, to beginning to address a key problem. Uh, If we're building the transportation networks, we create jobs, we go a very long way. So those are pieces that I think we need to deal with at this point. So if I was to point to a number of, just a, a short list of things that we need to do, I think we need to engage the port as a community and as a province in a very meaningful discussion about what this new 2050 plan means that they put on the table and how the port grows and expands in a way that is more sustainable than it has been in the past. We need to invest heavily in transit uh, and be prepared to make the argument for that. We need to oblige our communities uh, to more sustainable land use planning and some are very good at it, like Vancouver, others less so but we need to demand that and we need to figure out a way to increase our housing density and manage our housing costs, housing costs being the challenge that they are. Uh, we need to invest an awful lot of money in infrastructure development, uh, it's a hidden uh, obligation and need that we have, most of it's underground, we're not seeing it but it, it's essential, again it's a need for dollars to do that. and. Uh, We need to continue to invest more and more money, I think, uh, in education and training, uh, whether it's the universities, the colleges, the apprenticeship systems. uh, That is a key for what we can do, is to drive for a more highly educated and better trained uh, workforce uh, that in fact embraces many of the principles that are being talked about here in terms of how they see advancing their career paths uh, in their, their chosen professions or occupations. I think that begins to take us in the direction that we need to go in the midterm. In the long term, uh, there are global challenges uh, there and we need to play a role in that discussion but realize that we are a very small player in that larger discussion.
5: Thank you. I'll just leave it there. So we have uh, a couple of discussion questions that we put together to help kind of guide um, our we also wanted to leave a bit free flowing and I think just based on what all of you have outlined there there are some points of contention already coming up and I'm sure Mark probably wants to respond to some points but we'll get to that um, so our panels have just kind of outlined very s- more specific ideas for what they think um, should drive BC's economic development future and so we kind of wanted to ask them now to look um, Back to the title of our panel, Global Change and Local Economic Development, Um, and uh, Shane was talking about the port as a very important um, player that we need to engage with in the future. Um, Mark was talking about the science of climate change and the need for urgency, and Bryn was talking about um, a lot of what you two talked about in building retrofits and the potential for opportunities for employment and as well as reducing our carbon so we would like to ask you guys now to, in light of what you just said, what particular industries should Vancouver or BC focus on for future local economic development? Um, climate change is a global issue, yet at the same time we're looking at local solutions to meet that. How does that play out in terms of uh, the context of BC and what industries we can draw on to be- meet both climate change, imperatives, and economic development? floor is open to you guys.
3: Well, I I can obviously speak for my own industry. I think think the fascinating thing about the whole Laneway House program is that the the city planners sort of unilaterally created an economic development niche. And so whereas we're seeing house building in the U.S. still continuing to be terrible, we've got this sort of amazing kind of micro-boom in a way happening in Vancouver that's all about infill development. And so I think that there, there is a lot of pent-up demand, but frankly, there's, there's not a lot of cities that have been willing to kind of make those kind of sweeping changes across the board, not just do it as pilot programs, but to do it across the board. Um, so I think it's a, it's a great kind of model for environmentalism coupled with economic development.
4: Um, well, a few things. I mean, I don't actually see... Um work as, as the, the key problem. I think, you know, a lot of this is sort of framed like, oh, if we go down the sustainable path, we're gonna lose like tens, hundreds of thousands of jobs and there's nothing that's gonna replace them. And in fact, it's quite the opposite. The, the type of things we're talking about that have been raised here, uh, you know, building retrofits uh, could be new green construction, uh, investing in, in transit infrastructure. Um, all of these things are, uh, are more labor-intensive. Um, the oil and gas industry is actually extremely capital-intensive. Um, the total number of jobs in D.C., direct jobs in the oil and gas sector, 3,000. Know, for all of the fuss we hear about it, that's 3,000 jobs. Now, there's a couple of thousand extra in sort of what they would call support industries for it. 5,000 out of 2 million um, employed. So we're talking like less like a fraction of 1% uh, of the total BC uh, economy is tied up in this. Now, on the other hand, they're extremely profitable. So let's distinguish between the profitability side of things uh, and, and the employment. Uh, and and I think, you know, it, it, to me it doesn't make sense to, um, to continue to play down that role. The, the LNG plants that, that Ch- Shane mentioned um, will add to the atmosphere, every year when they're fully built out, uh, at a minimum, you're very conservative in the calculations, a minimum of 140 megatons of carbon dioxide per year, possibly up as high as 500 megatons per year. BC's current you know, level, or you know, at least in 2009, the last year for which we data, was about 67. Um, now, a bunch of those emissions will be counted in China's inventory, because that's where they'll be burnt. Uh, but even just the emissions associated with getting them out of the ground and getting them to market will mean that BC will not only fail to meet its legislated 2020 target of a one-third reduction in, in emissions, we won't even be below 2007 levels um, at that level. So, I mean, this is, is, is essentially courting uh, environmental disaster uh, for extremely um, few jobs. So that's the direction we don't want to go in. Um, so I think yeah let's invest in uh, in buildings, invest in transit. Uh, one idea that I think is really interesting and this is more the one of the other panels around uh, zero waste and dematerialization and how we develop a closed loop system so that all of the um, the what are now wastes in our system either become compostable, they get returned to the earth, or they are materials that are fed back into. Uh, closed-loop cycles, if you think a lot of metals or plastics and, and that kind of thing. And I think right now we need a bit of a market maker in some form of like provincial um, waste to, to resource um, corporation. It could be a crown corporation. It could be a nonprofit. Not exactly sure what the, the market structure looks like. That would allow us to close the loop within BC and just break out of this track where we are, you know, we are exporting uh, raw materials and importing finish, uh, finished products.
1: A uh, couple of things. Um, first of all, I, I'd agree with Brian. I think that there's a significant investment to be made in, uh, in looking at, uh, at particularly at, at, at green buildings, at new construction <coughs> models, at, at new technologies, at how we do that, and on creating the expertise and the skilled workforce here to be able to do that work. Uh, and there's a lot of conversation goes on around how that happens. Um, globally and certainly in North America, but, but I don't necessarily believe that, uh, uh, that we're seeing uh, the level of expertise that we need. And one of the things about that particular area of work that um, has, uh, has value in the same way that the forest industry did uh, is unlike, and this is where I, I would agree around sort of some of the oil and gas, where the oil and gas essentially sits in the peace country and the jobs are largely generated there or at wherever the distribution is, whether it's Vancouver or it'll be Kinemat, but the jobs largely sit there. The forest industry, the jobs are in every community across the province. Uh, there was a mill, uh, there were support services, there were loggers. So throughout, so you distributed the jobs throughout. The ability to do the kind of retrofit work that's been talked about to rethink how we design buildings and how we improve our existing building stock allows us, I think, to create those jobs uh, as well. So I think that that's a pretty important piece. Um, in terms of, uh, of the in, the oil and gas industry and resources, uh, I think, and this is where I, I disagree, I don't disagree with the point that Mark makes, that the impact of resource extraction on climate is very significant. And LNG, while it's not oil, is still very significant. And depending on how we take it out of the ground, how they power those plants out of Kitimat, um, it's going to increase uh, our our emissions. I don't think there's any question about that. Um, The question is, can we mitigate that? We are a resource-based economy that is not gonna change in the foreseeable future. And to believe that it is gonna change in the foreseeable future is simply a myth. Uh, And so we need to maximize the royalties out of that that come to public coffers. Uh, There are a number of, there's three or 4,000 good paying jobs there But more importantly, there is a resource there in terms of dollars that pay for other essential (coughs) services that we deliver in this province. And we need to take that and take our share of the resource rent. And I believe that that's a key piece to this. And we need to take and invest that in value added. Particularly as to how we deal with trying to revitalize a forest industry uh, based on value added and not on raw log exports. But we also need to take that royalty as it relates to LNG.
0: Maybe picking up on uh, Shane's last point, Um, and uh, can you think about some strategies to help local manufacturing industries compete with imports, Talking about value added, um, and, uh, and maybe decreasing the amount of raw resource exports? Um, and also you know maybe s- similar strategies to what has been able to happen with the laneway housing here in the city. Um, are there some other <coughs> some other things that we're missing right now that we can bring in uh, to help with this
3: I, I mean I think over the long run as as transportation <coughs> prices go up, we start to see local business starting to compete again with with other ones because right now, oil's still cheap enough, or at least it had been until recently, that transportation was negligible compared to labor costs and everything else. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're going to start to see a shift in that to where certain industries, one after another, start to pop up as being once again competitive in terms of their local economic development. Um, I think that in terms of the way we frame our discussion of of transportation, um, you know, it's not just about bikes for (laughs) riding your bike around. It's about post-carbon employee mobility or post-carbon consumer mobility. I think that you know the way that we're talking about um, our economic or about our environmental future needs to be focused on how is our economy much more resilient? How can our economy be that much more resilient than the other regional sort of bodies that we're competing against? Um, and I think that's, that, that's really been lacking in the way that we talk about this. When I, the kind of interesting example is um, on the personal mobility side or whatever is that during the Olympics there was this period of time where all of a sudden uh, vehicle trips were able to drop overnight, not overnight, but very quickly by say 30%, and the economy kept going. And that's because we had this kind of latent infrastructure that was able to scale up quickly to adjust the way we do things. If that was to happen in Houston, I don't think that they could do that. Like, I don't think they are as resilient an infrastructure in terms of their ability to adapt quickly to changes in consumption and, and energy price. So I think what, if we start talking about what would our local sort of goods movement and manufacturing look like if it was to be resilient in the same kind of way. Um, because I think we've, we've really, as planners and environmentalists, neglected the goods movement side of things. Um, neglected to talk about moving employees, moving consumers as part of a, a kind of coherent post-carbon economic development strategy and i think that's a big part of what we need
4: to me the question is like how local is optimal um i'm like i to me it's an open question whether we can have like a a fully localized economy although i think it's important to recognize that uh, a substantial portion of the existing economy is already like fundamentally local like a lot of small business a lot of the service sector which is three quarters of the economy is profoundly local i mean i could fly to china and get a haircut but you know i could go to commercial drive so you know why would i do the former um and so so the question is how do we build on those things for the things that we need in terms of like you know core basic uh, human needs Uh, we could do a lot more to uh, provision those things and i and i think part of it is also busting out of The conventional way of thinking about progress—that is, around sort of production-oriented measures, uh, growth in GDP and income uh, and Uh, consumption—because I think we are, if there's peak anything, it's it's kind of peak consumption, or at least peak consumption as it relates to human well-being and happiness. Um, You know, there's a whole wealth of literature right now that basically finds, you know, once you hit a certain level of income, your basics are covered, pretty much plateaus. You know, thereafter that, and and your your well being, your happiness is more determined by the quality of your relationships in terms of family and community, by your health status, by the amount of education you have. Um, full employment matters a lot. Uh, being unemployed is really devastating to uh, human well being. But but we could also um, envision worlds where we have better work life balance, uh, and, and that there's more broad based sharing of the work that needs. Uh, to happen, so I think that is a fundamental re-anchoring that we need to have. Um, I, I think the um, the the there's a lot more prospects for uh, cooperatives uh, and sort of sharing economies. Um, you know, we're already seeing. Uh, you know, well, we're on the verge potentially of bike sharing networks in BC, car car co-op. There's a lot of really good examples. I think we have a really strong asset in the in the credit union system. Uh, in BC that insulates us to some extent from the, the vagaries of the sloshing of, of international financial flows. Uh, so that is, is really important. But for me, the, the trickiest thing to get my head around, around, you know, local economy is like the really sophisticated high tech goods that we consume, which are predicated on like super economies of scale. Far far greater than the four million people we have here in BC. Like like it wouldn't make sense to locate uh, uh, an iPad manufacturing facility just to service the BC market. Or if it did, it, would, it would, the the cost of them would be, you know, much much more expensive than we are accustomed uh, to pay for. Um, but there are some also some interesting technological developments that are just you know coming around as well. Um, the the advent of what they call three D printing tools or fabrication technologies, where essentially you know it's it's like printing, but it's it's using uh, computers and printing type technology to in three D using uh, metals and plastics to be able to manufacture stuff on a kind of small scale basis. You know, whether that actually ends up displacing the the mass production system, I don't know. Some people think so, but it's an interesting avenue to explore. Um, If you were to do a thought experiment that said, you know, imagine the peak oil scenario is correct, or we really took climate seriously, and we simply could not trade with China anymore, and we were more fundamentally confined to maybe not necessarily B.C., maybe a bit of the United States and a regional economy, you know, what would that uh, fundamentally Uh, look like. So, you know, again, those are open questions, and I'm interested in what other people have to say on them as well. But, you know, it's a mixture of thinking about what the good life actually is, uh, and then how we go about producing the stuff that we need to fulfill it.
2: And that was a discussion, uh, panel discussion recorded in February of 2012 at the UBC uh, School of Community and Regional Planning's uh, annual symposium. And that panel discussion was looking at the future of the regional economy here in Vancouver. And as Mark Lee mentioned, um, that last speaker, um, about cooperatives and, and realizing um, alternative ways uh, to structure economies and uh, ways that we can be productively employed um, but not necessarily confined to the same structures um, that we've um, uh, been using or have or been confined to for so many years. And uh, in that, we're going to be looking at the cooperative, um, the worker-owned cooperative as a potential um, structure or arrangement um, as we look at urban um, economic geographies and economic landscapes uh, around the world. And um, that's going to be in an upcoming edition of our ongoing series on urban economies. And this ongoing series is called The Working City. And you can find uh, the first um, part of this series at thecityfm.org as well as a full archive of past uh, podcasts so check that out that's again www.thecityfm.org check us out on facebook the city critical urban discussions in addition to that on twitter with the handle the city underscore fm and uh, stay in the loop uh, keep up to date on what's going on everything urban both uh, f- with a vancouver focus and beyond and uh, this kind of comes to the end of the show. We're going to wrap it up. Um, Thanks so much for tuning in. Again, this has been another wonderful edition of The City here on CATR 101.9 FM, CATR.ca and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca and again, TheCityFM.org We'll be back next week with more critical urban discussions. Have a great week.
1: Listen, if they're so
4: hot, how come they're not tearing up the charts, babe? Because you never never them, babe at CITR our hosts choose the music they play. That means our charts actually reflect the tastes of music lovers as opposed to focus groups. So if you want to know what's really tearing up the charts get your hands on a copy of Beatroot or Discorder magazine or go online to CITR.ca. CITR's charts are based on actual spins motivated by actual preference. No payola, no marketing, just good tunes. Refreshing, no?
3: With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on.
4: We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes
3: next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way.
4: Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you.
5: Hearing your band playing on and on and on. Gosh, it's so loud.
2: Man, I wish we had a safe place to play music. Yeah, and shows too. The Safe Amplification Site Society is a non profit group dedicated to establishing a legal, affordable, all ages venue for music and arts in Vancouver. For more information or to get
1: involved,
4: check out www.safeamp.org. Go for